So you were saying about God? Well, no. It, what if well, God was one of us? Mm. <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> whoa. Don't hurt me. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. This episode of By That I Mean has not had nearly enough ounces. <laughs> Never enough ounces in your life. Never enough ounces. The biggest thing that I realized after, you know, days and, and months of me being stuck in bed. And thinking, because that's what I do when I'm stuck in bed is I read and I think and I bore the fuck out of people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is at the end of the day... We've always tried to resolve things in a trickle-down manner. Mm-hmm. Right? When we actually have to resolve things in a bottom-up manner. That's incredibly insightful. And I believe absolutely the truth. And, again, it does not fit the model of reality that we have been taught. And further... The model of reality, I think, that still persists in this country, um, especially politically, uses the language of bottom-up achievement and progress and integrity in the service of a top-down, abusive, oppressive power structure. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things holding not just this country back, but all of us individually as people in this country, is that we are still coded to believe that the Reaganomics economic model of trickle-down wealth creation is real and is an ideal way for organizing our society. The question that we are taught to ask in defining the American dream, quote unquote, whatever that is, and defining our lives and our beliefs for ourselves is what helps us right now. What gives us pleasure or comfort? What doesn't require us to change our mind? What requires the least amount of guilt and shame? Again, this model we have is about avoiding pain about avoiding discomfort. Avoiding fear. Avoiding fear, which avoiding in and of anxiety. itself is fear. Yeah. Like it's 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 based on all of these horrifically negative emotional manipulations, both of ourselves and each other. As much as our leaders in the teams, the political sports teams that we call parties, as much as they give lip service to the idea that we've somehow moved past it, we are still caught in trickle down which is really like trickle up it's like a vacuum yes. of money upward i found a really interesting policy paper from the jerome levy forecasting center called where profits come from answering the critical question that few ever ask 
And it's a long, 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 long mathematical model created by these economists who are proponents of modern monetary theory, which is the idea that because governments that create fiat currency can essentially print money, that we should actually be running higher deficits right now in order to get our economy actually working for the people that it's not working for, who've been 99% of us. It's accepted and well-documented fact that over 100% of the income gains from this quote-unquote economic recovery we've been in since 2008 have gone to the top 1%. We're now at a point where, for the last few months going, we are at an all-time high in terms of corporate profits. We are at an all-time low in this country in terms of the amount of money that's part of our overall economy and economic activity paid as wages. And I think those two things are very, very tightly correlated with each other. Well, and I would like to say, like, outside of economy, outside of all these things that we've been taught, that this concept of capitalism that we have that people are disposable, that people are dispensable goods, that we have excess people that we do not need, that that needs to be the very first thing that we let go. And it literally, I, I, you're so, so right on. And it's, it's not the idea of capitalism, even though I have questions about the concept of capitalism, of prioritizing capital over all other economic or all other factors of life into your consideration when you're organizing a society. But this capitalism is predatory. It does not actually prioritize a functioning economy over the profits of a few. It specifically prioritizes the profits of the few to the direct detriment of every other player in the game. The way the game has been arranged for the entirety of my waking life has been around the idea of short-term profits. The reason this paper is so interesting to me is that they really talk about the nature of profits, the nature of where they come from, and of how they function within the machine of an economy that involves not only private businesses, but involves a government that can print and spend money, that involves citizens who are ideally going to be workers creating things of value in that economy, and then as consumers in a consumer economy, having wages to pay into the system. It's been clear for a long time that we've prioritized profits, and specifically profits accruing to a subset of the population that's already wealthy, over the profits that we then share as wages across the entire society, and prioritize, prioritize that over citizens having revenue to both spend in the economy and to contribute to the government in the form of taxes. We've changed the way that we fund our society. We've changed the way the relationship, the monetary relationship between citizens and the government. People are like, oh, are you a pinko commie? Are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? 
in my mind, even that question is so fascinating because at every economic expansionary time in this country, it's come about as a mix of capitalist policies and very socialist policies and programs and redistribution of wealth. But even at the most expansionary time in America, the period after World War II, we confined that reality of a growing middle-class economy to one subset of our population and excluded every other American from being that kind of American. Yeah. We're doing it again, but on a much more exclusionary scale, on a much more destabilizing scale, because we're specifically prioritizing the wants, desires, and income of the 1%, and even more than that, like the 0.1%, who now own something like 22% of all wealth in the country, above every other citizen of America, every human being, and every animal and plant and fish species on this planet. I come from a Buddhist background versus a Christian background, a puritanical background. But to a certain degree, my philosophy is misdirected as it has been in various times in its life has always been who is vulnerable, who needs protection, and that who does not exclude you. Mm-hmm. Because that is that one thing is that people always want to feel that they are invincible from these powers that and, exclude. And yet, right. And yet we also have we humans being social animals also have the joiner impulse of wanting to feel like we belong. We belong to a greater a, whole. And also that we belong to a winning team. That too. You know, and it's one of those things where what are you winning? What are you winning? And I mean, that's a good question as we head into midterm season to ask of people who still align themselves with the Democratic Party. Like I personally, like I told you, I I came to politics from learning about conspiracy culture. So my mom's a spend... conspiracy theorist. Oh my god, that's so awesome! I would love to talk to her about. She loves David theories. Icke. Oh my lord! <laughs> oh my very Jesus! That's you amazing. You need to come over for a weekend. Oh my god, we have to talk about lizard people with your mom, McCoy. <laughs> yes, Holy. we totally have to. But if you spend any time reading about the truth behind conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking. And how it's developed and how those conspiracies kind of transpose across different time periods, across different cultures. You'll come to learn also alongside it the real history of what actually happened. Um, And both parties have, over a course of a very long time, kind of reversed the polarity of what they actually believe and what their policies express as their beliefs. But I think much in the way that we're coming up at this kind of important turning point where people break with the old ways of thinking, the old stories we tell each other, I don't think our party structure provides Americans a viable set of choices for how our how all of our real beliefs become laws. I don't think anymore that judging our votes based on what team a particular politician is on will yield any satisfaction, (laughs) if it ever did. 
I was a strange kid. You know, I I think I was what fourth. You know, <laughs> no, me never. Like you know, I I remember being in fourth grade and being entranced by the Bork confirmation. Robert Bork. Yeah. Yes. Because I think I was like fourth, fifth grade, somewhere around there. I can't remember, but grade school, elementary school, and I just remember being transfixed and watching CNN and PBS and Crossfire and all these things, and not understanding jack shit of what's going on. But just like this is fascinating, and that was my introduction. Well, my real introduction to politics was Carter versus. Um, uh, no, no, no. Mondale versus Reagan. Oh, wow. Okay. It, back in 84. My birth year. Yes. That was my introduction to politics where I remember talking to, for one, I was impressed that Mondale was introducing a woman as a vice president for Geraldine Ferraro. You oh, know, regardless yeah. of what you may feel of her, of her politics or whatnot, you know, for an eight-year-old that didn't have a lot of complex, nuanced thinking at that time, that gave me a lot of hope. Like, oh my god, this woman, this woman is going possibly to be the vice president that symbolistically that was symbolically symbolistic who knows yeah i i've had way more glasses of wine but that's okay symbolically speaking that that was important to me as a little girl that's not to deny that there is power in that you know because then that external experience of the possibility of a woman being nominated to that office expands your idea of the truth of what your potential is, any woman's potential. At the same time, that in and of itself does not change any laws that oppress women. Yeah, and it was also one of those things where as an eight-year-old and as a Japanese-American, as a Japanese-born person that has, you know, you know, where the history of Hiroshima... Somebody that was born in Japan and that even went to kindergarten in Japan that has any exposure to media in Japan, the atomic bomb is not a far thought, especially still back then. You know, and so for me, somebody, Mondale was like, oh, like, you know, war is not, you know, he was not a hawk or at least from mm-hmm. what an eight-year-old Akoi could perceive <laughs> at eight years old, you know, he was not Reagan. He was, he didn't have that hawkish rhetoric. And that was my introduction to politics was as a dove. What I learned from my very short time in Japan and coming to the United States and coming from people that have been decimated by the atomic bomb. Not just once, but twice. And not just physically, but psychologically and sociologically. You know, was that for me, my question was always that we should avoid war, that we should avoid violence, and that we should not protect the weak out of some savior mindset, but because we are weak as individuals and we only find strength as a collective. 
we even only find individual strength from our relationships and the ideas and nurturing and support we get from other people. Absolutely. That it is both individual and collective. Yes. And I think again, like a failing for me of libertarianism is its insistence on the belief that the individual is self-sufficient absent any other one person. And it's impossible. That is a recipe for sociopathy. If you look at biology, we're not wired that way. Exactly. We are social animals for a reason. You know, we crave acceptance. We crave companionship. And in the exaltation of those things that should be cooperation, that should be empathy, that should be understanding, that should be peace. You know, and one of the things that I came to is the fact that we don't have these things because we have, if we are to wage war on anything, anything in our society, anything in our life, it is to wage war on poverty and this concept that an individual human being is not worthy of water, food, roof, and life. And I think the only way to lead ourselves individually to the collective questions we have to be asking that will result in those things, those guarantees being answers. I think that requires interrogating the fabric of this reality that has been woven for us and that literally everyone my age and younger has been taught from birth. I was brought up with that myself and it wasn't the only reason that I had food on the table, roof on my over my head is because of the relationships that I've developed over the years, whether it's with my own family, whether it's with other people, you know, the fact that I've kept my sanity together, that that I've kept my emotions together, that, you know, I can wake up and say, hey, it's eight o'clock and what does that mean? Because it's one of those things where when I look at somebody homeless on the street, I don't think, oh, that'll never be me. I think the only reason I am me, that I do have a roof over my head, is because of so many hundreds of factors that have kept the roof over my head. And if I did not have them, that would be me. That would very likely... And that is is a success. That's a series of successes, you know, and that's enabled even more success and flourishing for you in your life. And yet again, the story of success is a very individualized one. It's very self-directed. I think that's trickle down in and of itself from a model of organizing a whole market society based around short-term, immediate gain. Like, I, I don't think... The game is zero sum or negative sum unless you make it that way. And I think we've inherited a game that is kind of at the core of our society, which is this market economy game. 
and the particular set of rules that we've set up for this game hurts most of the people who ever play it and for I the gain of very few. Yes, and I agree with that. I mean, it's one of those things where, for example, as is, is individual human beings, as collective human beings, you know, a lot of it, a lot of what is effective what produces success, what produces failure, is what we focus on. And, and how we turn that focus into truth and lived in models in our society through getting together, through organizing, through creating culture, through creating systems of power. Um, but even those stories that we create, even if we make a model of reality that works for us for a certain amount of time, the nature of truth and the nature of the universe and the passage of time are such that the truth can dispel our notion of reality. The truth can sweep away, can not, like, not only can the truth sweep away our previous stories, but we as humans sometimes carry on and transmit the symbols of these models of reality past their sell-by date and past the point at which they have anything to really truly teach us about how to cope. To a degree, that is that aspect of constantly questioning. I mean, it's obvious that there's too little questioning at this point from most of us as citizens of this country, but... Even the people who claim to be politically progressive, politicians who work on the side of the people, repeat stories that no longer fit reality. So many Democrats still continue engaging the same myths that Reaganomics taught us. If I can say sanguinely, <laughs> I love that word sanguine, but if I can, you know, the one thing I can <laughs> say sanguinely is that the top-down model is not justice. That if we do not protect the most vulnerable in ourselves and others and promote what is safe and productive and kind to those that do not have because that may that that is us that may be us that well, we do not build this wall of separation that is like violence it's one of the social diseases one of the ego tricks that we play on ourselves and on everyone else the idea that we can be apart from it all or whether that's above it all or below it all that's one of those things that i always face as somebody with a chronic health issue you know, the wall between me and homelessness will never be a thick one until we change this concept that healthcare is a universal right. Yeah, until we make that real. Yes. Until we make, until we incorporate into our model of reality in America the idea that people's very well-being is, you know, somewhat important to protect. Yes. And, and for, you know, and I can say that for myself, like for some people I know, that is not necessarily physical health care, but that's mental health care. 
Absolutely. You know, like for, you know, I mean, you know, and there are so, I mean, there are so many, many factors of whether it's healthcare, whether it's safe working conditions, whether it's humane working conditions. Whether it's a living wage. Whether it's a living wage. Like all these things are related. And at the end of the day, poverty is violence against the very people that cannot fight against it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, we also... And I, we accept it. That's right. the thing I think that enrages me. That's the pathology that, of it. That we accept that nobody should have to fight for a roof over their head. No child should have to fight for food on the table. But if they were unfortunate to be born into parents that for one reason or the other, whether it's desire or circumstance, could not provide that society steps up to provide for people that cannot. And that is not weakness. What I want to repeat is that that is not weakness, that a lot of that is systemic, that a lot of that is circumstance, that a lot of that is generational. It's the nature of systems of power that oppress like that, that it individualizes the oppression to its victims. So... It's bootstrapping ethics. Exactly. What trickles down is the idea that each person is an individual, that we are part of no greater whole, that what befalls us when a corporation fires us to hire someone in India for $2 an hour to do the same job is that we were weak, that we weren't willing to work for little enough. It makes problematic the individual, and it seeks to teach people to be powerless in that deprivation and to see themselves as not a victim of policies, of pathological thoughts, of of a faulty exploitative economic system. And of a faulty social structure that people don't recognize. And the very nature of how it deprives people and what it deprives them of makes it less likely that those people who are victimized by this set of systems are going to see it as systemic. And it's all of us because we all suffer when the least among us suffer. It's not just like some fucking parable from the Bible. It's literally true. There is dead weight in our society, but it's not from the unwillingness of individual people. It's from a system that by its design deprives a large percentage of us of the opportunity to live our lives meaningfully or live our lives at all. And it teaches the rest of us who it does grant a small pittance to enjoy our lives. No incentive to have empathy for those less than us and every incentive to allow those above us to continue hoarding and sucking everything up. And it's one of those things where, you know, like, unless you are independently wealthy, unless you literally have millions upon millions of dollars in the bank account to your name, That you are one serious illness, one serious physical accident, one serious mental and emotional breakdown 
from exclusion of everything you knew in your life. And that, as just looping perfectly back to the beginning of our conversation, it's that anxiety, that fear is the forcing mechanism of compliance at one point. But there's another point. There's time will move us to a different point because this this kind of systemic exploitation, this arrangement of power that we have in this society is not sustainable. Not only the negative feedback loops that we've created in our notions of what a what a good economy does, who succeeds in a successful economy, but our very notions of what we believe and how we represent kind of our individual power collectively, all of those muscles atrophy. But I think we're going to arrive at a time when we are going to all be dragged down low enough that we realize that we all have the same struggle. I think it's going to happen if, it's n- if we're not there now. You know, that has been the rise and the fall of empires. That has been the rise and fall of nations, of people, of cultures. This is, you know, human beings have actually been an incredibly bad learner of the past (laughs) and of history. Again, going back to memory. Yeah. Remembering is re-remembering. And it's also, to a large extent, forgetting. Yes. And our capacity for historical amnesia has been our undoing over and over and over again. And also, you know, personal hubris of ego of various, you know, and so many of these crystallizing into an aggregate. But, I mean, with climate change happening... And that disrupting the major core of what makes our society run, which is food, water, and fuel. Climate change vastly can impact food and agriculture. Climate change can vastly impact. It already is. Yes. It's already already impacting it. Water access, water resources. Yeah. And also, you know, fracking, for example, contaminating groundwater. Causing fucking earthquakes. The question for humanity is, do we want to do this in a peaceful manner or do we want to wait until it becomes a violent outburst? And that's that's another interesting fold. It's like we, we talk about language and the words we use and... I've really come to realize that like the adage about the hard way and the easy way is true because you're going to learn one way or another, you know, and there's and that's not to say it's necessarily going to be easy any particular way you learn. There's always going to be adjustment phases. There are always going to be difficult phases that, you know, I mean, for me, I, again, I I am not a religious person. And as a secular Buddhist, one of the most important lessons that I had to realize is life is change. Life is adaptation and life is also suffering in that process of adaptation. And there's... You have to accept that change is not easy. It's painful. It's painful. Well, I think it's I, again. I think it's I, I. I think it's painful if you make it. If you make the organizing principle of your happiness 
just the inertia of nothing ever changing, then it's going, you're going to be broken. You're, that's going to be proven wrong by the truth. Well, I think the, the painful that I always say is because emotion is not rooted in logic. No. And it's never rooted in logic. And logic is kind of like this amorphous. I think it's the other way around. I think yes. logic is rooted in emotion. But it's, you know, that pain is not necessarily something to avoid. But yeah, it is something to accept. Life is not always happy. I think that it's life. something that needs to be embraced and yes. learned from because what what is hiding in our pain is our power to heal ourselves and the relationships we have with other people that can heal us and the mistakes we can identify in ourselves and in others that we can change. Like it's all of these things can be changed. But the particular top-down way that we have right now, the organizing principle we have of, okay, so what are you going to do for me now? That's not healing us. That's not making things better. It's pulling everyone further apart. It's pulling people further from themselves. Or it's even that question of a lot of times, you know, because I tend to come from a very critical background. People are like, well, what's your answer? Because if you don't have an answer, you shouldn't be talking. And I'm like, no, right. I'm not necessarily interested in an answer. I'm interested in discussion. Because I don't have the answers. That answer has to come from many, many, many people communicating and exchanging ideas and hashing out various differences. That's another reason why I'm so happy I had you here to talk about these things is because I know that you very much like formed your own set of beliefs, not inheriting the kind of any models of reality. Yeah, my parents were, you know, my mom was completely not political. My dad was, my dad was a fucking narcissist. So I, you know, everything was like what works for me at this particular junction in time. He had no yeah. real ideology. You want to you wanna talk about trickle down? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the individualized version of yeah. what our kind of collective delusion is. So it was, you know, so my interest in politics was, and sociology was was self-directed in, not necessarily self-directed, it had, it came from, you know, my grandparents and of, you know, trying to constantly as an outsider you know, of not living with nuclear family, of, of constantly moving once I was with my nuclear family. As an outsider of what is community? What makes community? What makes connections? Mm -hmm. What makes intimacy? What makes lasting bonds? That a lot of times when you grow up in one place or where you don't move very often, that these things come granted to you. That you have friends that you've been with since grade school because you've never moved. That describes my childhood like pretty accurately, you know. Um, I was born and raised in a white flight suburb right outside New Orleans. So until I was 14 or so, like until I went to high school... Um, I went to the same school for K through kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, so it was like definitely an adjustment period. 
going to high school and I went to high school in like in New Orleans proper, uh, like in uptown New Orleans. So even then it, it required a lot of adjustment and it also carried with it a certain amount of separateness that I felt because I was still, I was a West Bank kid. So in other words, every day after school, I would go across the river to get to school and then back across the river to go home. And even that was kind of a geographical separation, but also in a way a class separation from the other people I went to school with. But much like you, like my parents and my relatives and those I grew up around tried to program me the same way they were programmed and thought was the truth. Um, But I recognized really early on that it wasn't, that it didn't fit the truth of my life, didn't fit what I wanted, how I loved. And yeah, I, I just thought it was so fascinating that we started with the image of love that this society sets up for us. In my own personal kind of journey of finding acceptance and love for myself, I've come to believe that I think the organizing principle of all of our systems of power and of our societies and countries, and as far as I think countries should still exist, is love. Like, I think that's the only higher angel of our nature that humans really can organize around. It's not that I don't think there are ways that that concept can be hijacked, but I think it's a much better idea, certainly, than how are you helping me right now? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, the big thing for me, you know, because again, like talking about like divesting myself from this concept of romantic relationships being a reflection of our self-worth, right, was that concept is denigrating our close friendships, You know, because my relationship to you or my relationship to my close friends is not any less worthy. Or any less transformative. And it's no less love. Yes, it's no less love (laughs) that I need to focus on, on finding love in my life rather than structure. And whether that comes... And and rather than just external identifications or labels for those structures. Yes. And and also, you know, divesting to a certain degree, like sexual activity, that, that has nothing to do with love. That it can. It absolutely can. But love is action. Love is not fucking somebody. Love is caring well, but see, I think about that's, somebody. But see, I think that's, I think that is part of love. But I think that an organizing principle of society that places emphasis on how someone makes me feel good now is not going to foster the kind of relationships where people integrate sex and their sexuality and their sexual relationship into their romance in a healthy way. Or, you know, for those that are asexual, that those that are aromantic. I identify with many labels. Yeah. You know, in a sense that, like, for example, you know, me wanting to fuck somebody has nothing to do with my desire to getting to know them and realizing that that was kind of a weird thing for a lot of people, especially for heterosexual men. Like, what do you mean you want to talk to me and you're showing all this interest in me, but you don't want to fuck me? And you're doing it not solely for the purpose of getting in his pants 
or yeah. getting in his pocketbook right. that like right. I wanted to hear what he had to say, the ideas he had in his mind. Love is not just a feeling, but an action that it is caring about what somebody feels, what somebody thinks. For me, you know, instead of focusing on structure and of institutions and playing into them, the the only thing at this point in my life, and, you know, talk to me in five years from now, I may have a different one, but for now, is that I'm only interested in if I cannot be a positive influence in your life, and if my friends cannot be, or anybody in my life cannot be, some kind of positive influence, whether that's emotional, whether that's intellectual, that that is what we should strive for is that, you know, we have the capacity to make ourselves better and bring out the best in others. And that is what is community. And that is what is love. And whether that's monogamous, polyamorous, asexual, sexual, gay, straight, bisexual, pansexual, I don't give a fuck that we should strive for betterment of each other to bring out our talents, bring out our hopes, to converse, to understand. To relate. <laughs> to relate, to empathize. Yeah. yeah. To and it's, and be it's, creative And again, it's, it's that requires setting aside the power we place in the symbolic language around it in the same way that discussing the use of tax dollars to create direct government jobs to hire poor people is socialism, but it's not this boogeyman of Stalinesque fury that is projected onto it in our current kind of discussion. We can value the emotions and the relationships and the coexistence of like polyamorous groups and triplets and whatever it is like well, it, without in any way diminishing yes monogamous people or those who don't feel like who don't have super attached romantic relationships, any of that. Like, again, I don't think the game is zero sum unless we allow the rules to be defined that way. And it's easy when you've grown up with the rules being set a certain way by certain kinds of people, people my age literally haven't lived any differently. Or rather, we haven't been told that any different method is success or is love or is full humanity. But I, I really, and maybe it's naive, again, check with me in five years and <laughs> check with Ikoi in five years. But I think there are a lot of people my age and younger who are seeing that the truth that they have already lived in their short time on this earth is not fitting with the stories that have been told to them and the programming that everyone and all of these systems around us have tried to put on us. Again, I think a better system is possible, but I don't think it just happens ever from the top down. And I don't think it can happen without people individually recognizing the distance between what we've been taught and what we feel and what we want and us making those changes in our own lives. You know, whether it's 
whether it's homophobia, whether it's sexism, whether it's racism, whether we have come to accept that dominance is strength instead of dominance being violence. We don't have to be dominant, that we can cooperate. We also have the coded belief that vulnerability is weakness. Yes. Or that, that openness is weakness. Even openness with pain yes. is weakness. Or in, openness in with vulnerability right. is weakness, and that's what prevents people from becoming close to each other. Right. And that it, becomes people it's an cagey. an incentive to keep a, a distance. Yes. It keeps people cagey. It, ke- it keeps people from genuinely committing to each other and not just in terms of structure but in terms of all our relationships whether it's friendships romantic jobs it makes people's lives zero sum it makes relationships zero sum where they come to think that oh i can't share my pain with this person or oh, this person told me about this horrible thing that happened to them, but that's them, that's their choices. That's just you being you. We're not, we're never just us. And this fixation of our, the centering of all our discussion around the self is, I think, necessary to move us all forward, but it can be misleading. And I think our conversation collectively as a country, but also as a species, has been kind of hijacked from our nature as social animals and directed toward this selfish separation idea. Not the idea that I am a self among many others, that I am an island, but we are all in the same ocean. It's now the far extreme of that end, the I am the only island in the ocean and that I will drown anything that floats (laughs) nearby in order to stay afloat. Just as you've exemplified, I think, really, really clearly, that has profound ramifications on the individual, but also that in and of itself has ramifications on the whole because we are not separate from each other. Even those of us who hold each other separate, who hold ourselves separate or who cast other people out, that doesn't mean that those people don't affect us anymore. I have lived in this neighborhood something like seven years now and there's a homeless man who stands around down the street from me, around literally around the corner from me, and I have seen him wander the same part of the same street almost every day for the entirety of my time living here. He has never found housing. He has never found lodging. He has never been taken care of. And I feel guilty, too, because I'm part of the system that makes it possible for him to be there. But it just it blows my mind that it's been this long and that... Even the methods that we have to deal with chronic poverty like that aren't applied. As progressive as Los Angeles can maintain that it is, can pretend to be, that we still have the same people who are chronically homeless for decades on end. I used to go to this club Largo, which is on Fairfax Avenue in the Little Israel district of of Los Angeles. Um or well Largo used to be on in in that section of town and there was a woman who I knew was homeless but she never would beg for money she I would just see her literally walking down the street past me at this club every Friday when I went to see a show 
And in recent years, I've seen her walking down the street in my neighborhood and like you it, looking exactly the same, wearing the same like pair of like one dollar uh, neon pink star shaped sunglasses. Like I, I couldn't mistake her for anyone else. And I also couldn't help but see her look exactly the same as I saw her all those many years ago. And we are creatures of habit. And I think that extends to the systems that we create. But sometimes as hard as our habits are to kill, we have to let them go. And we have a habit in this kind of society that we've grown up with, where we find it really easy to let people go where we find it really easy to forget people are human, where we find it really easy to invent reasons to believe that other people are less than human. And with that, we have carried this delusion that if we somehow just believe that folks are lesser, then they won't be among us, that their problems aren't our problems and won't affect us, that we can sweep them under the rug or just have them hang out on the rug next to us without affecting us at all whatsoever. But more and more of us are going to find that that's not true, that it's never true, and that that suffering that we create does not go away. I think finding out what to do about it, finding out how to really heal it and solve it and move on to things like climate change that bring our entire existence into a state of variability, solving those other problems requires rediscovering the power that each individual person has which will lead us necessarily to discovering the power we have together because those, and, and I don't think we can separate those things, but I think, I think a lot of individual people out there who may listen to this, or if you're listening to this, I know, you know, someone who is waking up to the fact that all of these stories we were told didn't even necessarily fit the truth and fit the observable world we share when we were born, but they definitely don't fucking fit now. And if we don't get rid of and tell new stories and show each other the truth of our lived experiences, then we're not going to be able to catch up in time. We're not going to be able to rediscover our collective power to act together to solve this shit in time to literally save our species from itself. And I don't like to be fatalistic and I don't like to believe that there are points of no return, but it's coming, but they're coming. It's coming. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where when you ask people to shed these lifelong beliefs that what is the hope that you can give them right you know and and i'm going to use a very unfortunate and loaded language in explaining those but we do need a brave new world we really do we um, need a brave new world where you know it's one of those things where I'm a pragmatist at heart, and that is the consistent battle that I have between my heart <laughs> and my brain is my pragmatism with my idealism. Yeah. But if you don't believe that poverty is an artificially created condition, 
If you, if you believe that every single one of us, given the proper opportunities, given the proper tools, can be something to not everybody, because that's not what we ask out of anybody, but to somebody, that we all have a place that there is no disposable people. There is no expendable people. That young men and women shouldn't have to shed blood for oil, for money, for profit, for power, for land. That these things belong to all of us. And none of us. These are things we have to believe in, that these are ideologies that we have to believe in if we want to move forward and maintain. Again, any model of that that we scale up to six and a half billion people is by its nature going to miss some. <laughs> it's, it's going gonna miss to some. miss but, some. Yes. But the technology that we have, the new kinds of community that we can form right now in this time allow us more than ever before to really perceive the truth and to share what is happening and the consequences of this particular arrangement of things that we've inherited. And I think it's also one of those things are for we've grown up in such a metric based society of this metric based idea of you know we need to if we do something that it needs to come back in a certain form of return that a certain form of return that we can accept rather than necessarily a return in general because for example you do not necessarily try to you know, eradicate poverty with the idea that nobody is ever going to make bad decisions that, right. you know, make people poor, right? But that we can adjust our systems and adjust our society to make that less and less and less and less likely to guarantee a certain quality well and not of only life. that but on the on the flip side whatever our organizing model of reality is for any better society has to see it as a failure when people become poor when people are thrown into misery yes. when people are put into prison when millions of people are imprisoned generation after generation after generation, hollowing out entire cities that used to be industrial centers of your country. If you don't see that as a failure, that is not only showing your failure, it's a failure of your systems that are supposed to alert you to the deficiency of your society. And it's when also Detroit prejudice. Collapses, it's also prejudice. 
you know, I of mean, course, of course. But that's but that's the particular way in which our failure is bound up. That is the line. That is the arbitrary line along which our failure is falling. It's not just problematic that we are failing people in this racist way. It's also problematic that we are not seeing this as a failure in society. We are not taking into account that depriving millions upon millions, generations after generations of African-American men, jobs and employment in the society, we don't take into account, we don't add in those very specific and detailed equations when we construct budgets. The dead weight loss of pulling those people not only out of society, but out of this numbers-based economy of widgets that we have constructed, even by the narrowed and limited and limiting definitions of this particular kind of capitalism. Well, we have absolutely criminalized poverty. Yes. Whether that's economically, whether that's legally, whether... We are criminalizing victimhood in all its forms. We are criminalizing specifically all the victimhood of this system that we've arranged. And that's how it's sweeping up after itself. It's how it is getting rid of the dead weight that it, the system itself, and all of these arrangements and laws created. And it is unfortunately not working. And it's really not working because it can't. Well, it's it can't pay people little enough, <laughs> and it can't torture people strongly enough. <laughs> it's like we we are seeing the turbulence and the turmoil that happens when systems that impose a reality encounter a majority of its ruled people who find that it no longer works, that it no longer works for them, that it no longer works for the majority of people that they live with. We're seeing countries fall apart. We're seeing all these arbitrary borders of nation states become as readily arbitrary, as readily apparent as, as they should have been, that they are completely arbitrary. You know, I mean, when you look at Greece... You know, I mean, because, you know, Egypt, Egypt, well, it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people like when you say Egypt, they're like, oh, well, that's been a developing country for a long time. Of course, they're going through turmoil, right? No, first world countries are not exempt. Look at our own country of the number of incarcerated people in the United States. Look at Greece and Spain. In the constant riot that is never reported but is happening. And even and even going back to the example of Egypt, that doesn't take into account the grandeur of Egypt's former glories. But all of those former heights of glory came with a huge and precipitous tumble afterward because all of their former systems were based on a top-down rule that made slaves out of most people, that made everyone expendable under the pharaoh or the emperor or whoever was the head honcho. It's that that and same also, that know, same colonialism division. did not help. <laughs> right. The people who can't 
the people who swept away that old order instilled the same exploitative relationships just in a different form with a different skin color on top and just as surely and swiftly were brought down in time by the people who found that reality insufficient to serve their needs and to make their lives worthwhile. And more and more people in the world are going to find that. And I think it's only when people are given the tools or given the spark to make that search on their own, that search for what is true and what feels real and what is real to them. I think that's the only way that people don't get lured into violence, don't get lured into conspiratorial thinking that imposes a new reality that just might seem more comforting or, or more or substantial in the moment. reality that is more comforting. Right. It's we are we are always susceptible to narrative because part of emotion and the tricks of emotion and memory, again, is that we forget and remember things differently. So very easy. And we remember and forget them based on how we feel and what we feel. The power in discovering your own truth and your own reality and building community wherever you can find it with those people who can relate to you. And being able to appreciate that. That it doesn't have to necessarily come with a structure. Or a certain label. Label that you're comfortable with. I think those are the ways that if you are listening to this podcast or if you know someone who is and who is either interested in politics or even in their life who is kind of unsure of where to go from here. It starts with you. It literally can't be put any more simply. It starts with you. It's important to remember that it doesn't end with you and that making that journey worthwhile will have to mean connecting with others and will have to mean relating to people who you may not think you can relate to. But that is our only option. Well, nature of scarcity, scarcity has always made it easy to divide. And that well, has... and that's that's the zero sum game I, I've been talking about. It's like the fact that we're inheriting this tribal view of politics means that it's going to be up to us to transcend it and to create a viable structure that incorporates people's ideas that may themselves be left or right of center, but does not reduce our ideas to a blood sport because I think the poison and the toxicity in the system that we have now doesn't allow for either honestly liberal or genuinely conservative ideas to get through. I think at this point, the desire to protect and restore and rehabilitate and make sustainable the ecosystems on this planet that support life is a profoundly conservative idea. But the organizing political voice in this country that labels itself conservative, that still has the structure identified and labeled as conservative, is no longer conservative. I think it's radical. And I think that its real beliefs and its real revealed preferences will create a system that actually unravels, that cannot support human life, that cannot support our ecosystems. The only 
living systems that we are able to live in. (laughs) I think, you know, and, and we are trying to have larger conversations that is outside of the left, right, conservative liberal, um, you know, all these terms and, you know, whether it's conservative or radical, because a lot of times, you know, these conversations depend on how do you define these terms? Absolutely. Because, you know, this concept that, you know, the poor and, you know, the weak are not weak, that they are part of the fabric, that oftentimes they are part of the most foundational fabric of our society for example hospitals absolutely cannot run without janitors janitors keep that environment sterile and clean in allowing the doctors and nurses to do their job that they are an absolute indispensable because if they didn't exist the nurses and doctors would have to take time away from serving patients to clean and wipe up and mop and you know all those things so that we don't we look at hierarchy that we do not look at function that we do not look at appreciation and we determine we still determine value by hierarchy yes rather than determining hierarchy by value and the whole meritocracy myth has so fallen out of out of people's trust and i think rightly so but and i think another that i think that's a really illuminating example um and, and i think another one that immediately leaps to mind for me is what we've turned farming into and we will wrap up this episode of the by that i mean podcast right here uh, without a bow but certainly in a spirit of giving and graciousness thank you so much if you've listened to the By That I Mean podcast, I really hope you get something out of it because I sure as fuck get a lot out of sitting down with these friends of mine and just getting a little bit smarter and thinking about things from a different perspective because I have someone to bounce my crazy ideas off of. Um, this conversation with Ikoi was really special and helped me realize things about what I believe that I'll carry with me in both every episode of this show and in my life. If you enjoy the By That I Mean podcast, I really think you ought to subscribe to us on iTunes. And I think you should also leave us a hyperbolic review describing things about us that you couldn't possibly know just from listening to this show. For instance, you should praise that I have several additional eyes in the back of my head in addition to the two that I display in front of me everywhere I go. And you should also compliment Ikoi's third and fifth arm. Not her fourth, though. Her fourth arm is really creepy looking. If you like us, you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash by that I mean. If you would like to tweet me, you can tweet me at mfpseth. The By That I Mean podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. And if you wait somewhat patiently, the final episode of the By That I Mean podcast, wrapping up this conversation with Ikoi about our fucked up economy and our social arrangement, will go up very shortly. I believe within the next week or so, because I then have more episodes. Yes, 
even more episodes with our wonderful friend Chris Godwin to share with you. So keep an ear out for those. Subscribe to us on iTunes so you get those easily as soon as they come out. 